Hello and welcome to the Health Hour of Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW, streaming to Rumble this week and to Facebook and to X. I'm going to try to remember to say X, even though I find it very awkward. We're so glad to be here. This is our last show of 2023. What amazing year it has been. And I'm so pleased to have joining me for both hours today. We've got Bob Reynolds, who is with uh, Informed Choice Washington, as well as Children's, the Washington chapter of Children's Health Defense. Welcome, Bob. Hi, Bernadette. It's always good to have you here. And, you know, we are joined by Lisa Templeton. We're sort of a trio here. Lisa Templeton is also with Informed Choice Washington and the Washington Chapter of Children's Health Defense. Welcome, Lisa. Good afternoon. Happy to be with you. Yeah, this is so cool because, you know, the three of us have been working together for many years. Um, you know, so we're we're more than just, you know, co-activists. We're friends. And um, I didn't really realize until I started kind of thinking about this show and reaching out to both of you that all three of us have done some countertop nutrition, which is the theme of this show. We've, we've done some sprouting and we've done some fermenting um, and other things that you can do easily in your home inexpensively. Um, but both of you, all of us have. And so it's really cool. It's one more thing that, it, that we have in common that we can talk about. Um, I need to say that the views expressed are not necessarily those of KKNW or the Washington chapter of Children's Health Defense. Um, and this hour is brought to you by the Washington chapter of Children's Health Defense. Um, we're a, a very new chapter. Hey guys, when, how long has it been since the Washington chapter has been launched? Just a few months, isn't it? Hasn't been a whole year yet. Yeah, it was July when we first launched and it was that soft launch by email mm -hmm. for existing members of CHD National. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're just kind of getting up and rolling slowly because it, the same people pulling all that together are the same ones running Informed Choice Washington, which is a very active medical freedom group that um, does so much uh, work um, during legislative session, um, a lot of educational outreach. And so, bringing on the Washington chapter of Children's Health Defense is done kind of slowly to have that presence and the build. So a couple of things here that's important in the new year is um, both organizations could use some help. So if you would like to volunteer, go to wad.childrenshealthdefense.org and find the volunteer tab. And we also need in order to support the great educational outreach, and that includes bringing some great children's health defense uh, data studies articles to the legislature, um, we could use some funding. The, we don't, you know, we all volunteer. None of us get paid to do what we do, but it does, it does cost to print materials, you know, and um, hold rallies and do all the, the various things that are done in order to um, spread the word. So if, if you could make a donation, uh, we'd very much appreciate that. Yeah, um, let me just yeah. add, Bernadette, that yeah. uh, we have a shortened version of the URL. So not just wa.childrenshealthdefense.org. Yes. 
for those driving around or whatever you might remember, wa.childrenshd.org saves yes. the keystrokes. Yeah, uh, yep, HD, childrenshd.org. Um, yeah, and it, you know, if anybody, because this show is watched by people all over the United States on the various social media platforms, if you're in another state um, and if you're wondering if there is a, a state chapter near you, the easiest one to figure it out is to put the initials of your state before that address. So for Oregon, you would put or.childrenshd.org and bring it to the Oregon chapter. Um, same with California, Florida. I forget how many different um, chapters there are now, but it's it can be kind of fun to discover there's one near you that you can get active with and sign up. Um, you know, we are we are going to win this, and it's it's about information sharing and spreading and that's why I'm so excited that here we are on the air still uh, doing our great work. So I am going to let the two of you talk, I promise. But before we begin, I have a big mea culpa. Okay, so it drove me crazy. Last, last week, we were talking about gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Amazing information. And it's true, we're not experts. We, we claimed we're not experts. We're reading to you from all these wonderful sources we found. But I made the statement that gold was relatively new to, um, to being used as medicine. I could not have been more wrong, Bob and Lisa. It is one of the most ancient. Um, so it's very humbling to do live radio and, you know, open mouth, insert foot, but it happens. And it's another reason why we give the disclaimer that we're not meant to be giving you medical or legal advice. It's conversation. And sometimes we'll get it wrong. Um, and I will always come back to our, our listeners and our viewers to say, hey, I got it wrong, you know. Uh, so, and we do encourage you to follow up anything we say here with your own investigation into whatever the topic is. So, but I want to, if you'll just bear with me so that I'm, I can let go of my guilt of misleading people about gold. <laughs> I wanted to read you to this. There's this wonderful website called Purist. Colloids, C-O-L-L-O-I-D-S.com, PierceColloids.com. And they say that the earliest records of the use of gold for medicinal and healing purposes come from Alexandria, Egypt, over 5,000 years ago. The Egyptians ingested gold for mental, bodily, and spiritual purification. The ancients believed that gold in the body worked by stimulating the life force and raising the level of vibration on all levels. The alchemists of Alexandria developed an elixir made of liquid gold. They believed that gold was a mystical metal that represented the perfection of matter and that its presence in the body would enliven, rejuvenate, and cure a multitude of diseases as well as restore youth and perfect health. As many as 4,500 years ago, the Egyptians used gold in dentistry. Bob, do you remember how I was wondering when it began? 4,500 years ago. Uh, still, Amazing. Amazing. yeah, isn't it? The archaeologists would found it, you know, in the mouths of people they dug up. Still in favor today is an ideal material for dental work, which we did discuss. Um, and then during the Renaissance, Paracelsus, uh, who is considered the founder of modern pharmacology, developed many successful medicines from metallic minerals, including gold. So, I mean, it just goes on and on. So I was so excited and a little bit mortified to find out how wrong I was, but there we go. It has been corrected. 
Um, okay, that's all in my notes. So today, guys, we're going to spend the time, part of it, like everybody likes to make New Year's resolutions. And usually people put on their list something that they're going to do to improve their health. And we want to share with you the fact that improving your health and, and good nutrition in your household doesn't have to be difficult and it doesn't have to be expensive. There's only this little bit of a learning curve. And I tell you, if the three of us can figure out how to do it, anybody can figure out how to do it. I do not have a green thumb at all. <laughs> so um, we're gonna start with uh, fermenting. Uh, fermenting has been done against ancient times, a way of preserving food, but it turns out to be an amazing um, way of um, uh, turning vegetables into extremely digestible and nutritious, feeding our gut biome. And we've talked a lot about that. So Lisa, I, you, um, you do this regularly, right? In your kitchen, right on your countertop. Tell us yes. about that. Yeah, I have a little brew or two going almost all the time, and it's a lot of fun. Um, as you mentioned, Bernadette, uh, this fermenting has been used to preserve foods around the world in all cultures since ancient times. Um, so another word for what you might call the fermented vegetables is pickled. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, many of today's pickled vegetables have been preserved using vinegar, most of it's probably white vinegar that originated with GMO corn and or the things that you buy in the store are pasture. <laughs> Bob, I know I just found that out a little while ago too, the GMO corn. Um, and a mm -hmm. lot of it is pasteurized and that process destroys all of the beneficial microbes and some of the nutrients as well. So yeah. if you do buy it from the store, but we're going to show you how easy and amazingly inexpensive it is to just make it at home, um, be sure to get it from the refrigerated section so that you know that the cultures are still alive and active. And there are some brands of, of pickled products that are still pasteurized that they put in the refrigerated section. I'm not sure why. Okay. I can think of one, but we won't name any brands. But um, I will name a good brand that I know, though, um, Bubby's. I love the yes. Bubby's brand. Okay. And that's, got, that's reassuring. That's reassuring. Yeah. Delicious. Yeah. Delicious. They've got pickles, sauerkraut, and I love their horseradish um, and a relish. They've got like a pickle relish that's really good. That's fermented. Um, very good. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's the, the easiest way. That's the easiest to, way to, do to it go buy it. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's expensive though, because a lot yeah. of time goes into making it, but I don't want that to scare you away because it's super easy and it's really fun. And remind me later to be sure to tell you one of the cute fun things about it. Um, okay. So the purpose of this fermenting is to provide conditions to allow the lactobacillus family of bacteria to proliferate while you're suppressing the activity of the putrefying organisms, which are what cause rotting. And the health benefits of these lovely foods include um, probiotic support of your gut microbiome and Apparently, it creates antibiotic and anti-carcinogenic compounds that you will then be ingesting. I got this from the Weston A. Price 
website you said mm-hmm. earlier, Bernadette, that I'm sure will be in the show notes. The enzymes produced enhance the digestibility of your food so that you can absorb more of the nutrients. And I don't know how it works, but Weston A. Price Foundation also says that it increases the vitamin levels in the food. Mm-hmm. So um, you start out with your fruits and vegetables and fruits or vegetables and salt. Now there's kind of two different ways of doing this. One is to create a brine, which is water plus salt. And there are certain ratios if you want to get really technical. Um, Here's a book that I found that I use all the time. The Farmhouse Culture Guide to Fermenting. And we'll we'll put that in the show notes too um, at Substack, our Substack column. Yes. And this will give you the ratios of salt to water. Now, some of the foods you'll make are just pure salt mixed with the vegetables and you kind of you chop up the vegetables and sprinkle them with salt and then you just go through and scrub you can use a tamper to kind of break down the cell walls and allow the moisture to release but I have a tamper but when I do that it just goes everywhere so I just rub it between my hands instead Um, you can get kids to cut up the vegetables even little kids you know there are those really safe knives that they can use to play a part in this to come to love the process and probably be more likely to try these foods. I'm ashamed to say I never tried sauerkraut till probably less than five years ago because Mm -hmm. it just, I thought it smelled gross and it looked gross. And now I just love it. (laughs) Um, Lisa, before you go further, can we talk a little bit about the water and the salt? Let's start with the water because if you're going to, you don't want to use a tap water that's got chlorine in it. That's not going to make a good fermentation. Perfect. Um, Yes. Um, You want to use filtered water, spring water, something like Bernadette said, you want to avoid the tap water, which likely has traces of pharmaceuticals. It probably has fluoride. The chlorine will is definitely there for its antimicrobial properties. So it will not allow the fermentation process to occur correctly. So yeah, get the purest, most clean water you can. Mm -hmm. Um, I have something called trace minerals, which is just a liquid that you could add a couple of drops that will uh, provide nourishment for the lactobacilli, but don't worry about it if you don't have it. Um, The salt you want to use is non-iodized salt. If you can find some nice sea salt or Redmond salt, any other salts that you guys like to use? Well, I've seen in the markets and almost every place now is that Himalayan pink salt. Mm Mm-hmm. And I found out it's from Pakistan. I thought it was going to be from, you know, Nepal or Tibet. But they used dynamite and exploded the hillsides in some place in Pakistan. Anyway. Okay. okay. That shouldn't turn us off, though. I don't know. I know. I know. That pop up in my yeah. feed, but um, does the Himalayan pink qualify? Yes. And I think what gives it its pink is our tiny little trace minerals, too. So that Mm -hmm. might take the place of those drops. Yes. And I would recommend, if you can, use organic fruits or veggies because, again, you're getting away from the chemicals that are bad for you and probably bad for the lactobacillus that you want to encourage. And Mm -hmm. so you just wash and cut. And um, now there are, again, we're going to branch into two different ways. There's an airtight method. And Bob, maybe, did you go grab your your what nourishing traditions book by chance yeah i have it handy here okay um this is sure hold it up 
This yeah, so yeah, nourishing traditions. I discovered this book when my son was just a baby, so twenty years ago, um, by uh, Sally Fallon, and it. It's an amazing, it's a diet book, it's a cookbook, it's a nutrition book, it's a history book. And it's based on the journey of a dentist, um, Weston A. Price, who traveled the world decades ago looking for the healthiest cultures. What did they have in common? What did they eat that explained their longevity and their good teeth and everything else? Yeah. Um, and they found that what these cultures all over the world had in common is, well, they soak grains, they sprout grains and seeds, and they ferment and they, you know, they have that um, all in common. Yeah. 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 So uh, what section in there in the nourishing traditions do you like then, Lisa? Well, I like it all. I don't actually have the book, but I've checked it out from the library many times and I've looked at it at your house too, Bob. Um, but Weston A. Price recommends doing an anaerobic fermentation and it only takes two to four days. So you tightly seal up your ferment and they suggest using whey, W-H-E-Y, as an inoculant. And Bob, do you know where whey, whey, little Bo, is it little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet eating her curds and whey? Yeah. It, it's a I very was amazed. This whole uh, nourishing traditions journey through that uh, cookbook and, and, and diet nutrition advice book is been amazing so way yeah w-h-e-y we just get it off of our yogurt we buy plain yogurt dig a little hole just dig a little tunnel and and let the whey the liquid from your yogurt collect so it's the accompaniment from uh, dairy products and i don't know if it's bad for lacto intolerant people lactose intolerant people i think it is but I was amazed you add it for the fermentation process and you don't have to add as much salt then. And it, I guess it accelerates the lacto-fermentation. Yeah, so it, it isn't, ne- for those of you with dairy allergies out there in the family, it isn't necessary, but if you don't have those allergies, it's a great addition and it's very high quality protein, the way of, you know, product that you get, but it's important to get good organic yogurt if you're going to just skim your own way off of it and and something that doesn't have any binders. Because if you if you buy like a, one of the name brands with all the binders and stuff in it, it, it's designed not to separate. <laughs> so when you do your little hole, it's not going to, the whey won't collect. Oh, I see. Stuff and in there to keep it. One separate. of the great uh, things I learned was about when you get the whey off of your plain yogurt, you're, I think we get Annie's or some other brand like that. It's in the, mm-hmm. the most grocery stores and, and we'll take the way out and then we're left with kind of a, a thicker version of yogurt. That's Greek yogurt. Yeah. Not only that, if you uh, continue to just let that go way down, way down, <laughs> you're basically left with Philadelphia cream cheese. Oh, really? You can use it as a spread instead of Philadelphia cream cheese. Cool. How long does that take? So you just keep just, uh, just kind of really extracting the string. Way. Basically, run it through your cheesecloth and gather the liquid that way. That way, and uh, <laughs> oh boy, use that a lot. okay. Oh, I love the cream cheese idea. Oh, that's yeah. neat. Okay. So, Lisa, you said this is an anaerobic, which means without oxygen process. So, how how does that look? Is that in a jar, or how do you seal it away? 
in this? Just take a mason jar. I would recommend using glass. I would never use plastic. And, um, you know, you've got the ring and the lid and just tighten it on there really well. And uh, don't open it for two to four days. That How is gap at the top. Or is this like where you have to weigh it down to make sure everything stays submerged in your, your salt brine? Or weigh well, it? it's my understanding for this one with the anaerobic condition, that's not necessary, but it wouldn't hurt. Do you fill it up pretty tall so there's very little air at the top? Or? Apparently, you just allow an inch or two headspace. Okay. Okay. Just like you do if you're canning. Right. Yes. So I haven't done so that one. Sorry. So anaerobic sounds like no air. But yes, you have right. a little layer of air in there and it yeah. still then achieves its purpose. I understand that that oxygen will be consumed in the process and then you'll eventually have anaerobic conditions. If somebody knows better, tell me. Oh, interesting. There's okay. chemistry going in there inside that. It jar. is. It's That's very cool. interesting. <laughs> um, Weston A. Price indicates that for fruit, this whey process is essential. I don't really, I don't ferment fruit much. I need to get into that more. So mm. I can't speak okay. from experience. How about you on the fruit? Never done fruit. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't uh, done any pickling fermenting of fruits. Okay, would be delicious. Unless you count the tomato as a fruit. And it technically is. Um, so you do salsa, recipe. right? I'm sorry? You do salsa? You you ferment yeah, salsa? Yeah, I was going to, when it's my turn, oh, I was going to tell you about oh. the <laughs> nourishing traditions, but it is amazing. It's the first thing we tried, luckily. And it is, it once all the onion, the cilantro, the tomato, to be basically submerged in the liquid. So mm -hmm. to answer your question, Bernadette, it does want to have the, the vegetation kind of submerged in, in the liquid mixture. Okay. And, and so... Uh, that's the next, that one wouldn't be considered the anaerobic. It basically it's, is though, because you're is. only leaving a little bit of airspace at the top of your yeah. canning jar. Yeah. And and the fact that it's all submerged in the liquid makes the, the you know, the fermenting processes. Do you have like a, a cheesecloth on top, something air permeable or a tight lid? It's a tight lid. Oh, it's a tight Ooh. lid. Okay. So he's doing anaerobic, isn't he? Okay, yeah. And so how long do you let that go, Bob? And this is another amazing thing I learned about the process. We leave it on the countertop, just like the name of this show. Yeah. How do you not put something that you're going to eat pretty soon into the refrigerator and let it you know, hang around at 40 degrees? We'll leave it on the counter for two to three days and nothing grows. Nothing bad grows on it. It's growing inside, I expect. The lactobacillus is, is growing and doing its job and adding a little bit of carbonation, you get a little bit of, how do you know, Lisa, when your uh, fermentation is done? Well, the airtight might be trickier because since you have to remove the, the mechanism of locking it to taste it, but um, the other ferment that we'll talk about in a minute that doesn't require the airtight seal, um, just, you know, there's a certain time span. And then after that, you just taste it and let it go longer if you want it more tangy. Yeah, there's that aspect. But have you noticed on the lids of your canning equipment, the lids themselves are like a drum. They have a down position and they'll pop up when they gets pressurized. Mm -hmm. And that's one way we tell. We know that the reaction is taking place when the top, the lid top starts to pop up a little bit and you can push on it with your finger and say, oh yeah, there's actually some pressure in there now. Yeah. 
It's building it's up really a gas or something, right? Carbon yeah. dioxide. And I'm yeah. pretty sure that was their master plan. If we read the instructions on the, the <laughs> ball or the cur jars or mason very, jars, right? Uh, and very those cool. are the metallic lids. The two-piece metallic lids are what we use. Yeah. All right. Okay. Do you want me to talk about the this, the kind that's not the anaerobic airtight? Yes. Yes. Talk. Um, they're different. Again, you um, you know, you're going to do your brine plus fruits and vegetables, or you'll do just your plain salt and just look up a recipe online or get a book, go to the library. There are tons of books about it. Um, but there are different mechanisms to allow the carbon dioxide to escape and still keep the, the product clean. And one of them is an airlock that you would does. put. This is just a, yeah. this is a Looks jar like lid. A chemistry yeah. lab experiments. Yeah. 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 You put and it so on, you, mm -hmm, on your jar. You, yeah. You fill that with, you put so much water in that so that the gas can escape and it just bubbles up through the water mm -hmm. and other stuff can't get in there. Mm -hmm. um, there's just this plain old, it kind of looks like a nipple and there's like a tiny little X scored in this. It's just silicone. Oh. So you'd put that on top of your jar with your jar ring and it will allow the gas to escape. Well, you know, it's not as perfect as that as far as keeping stuff out, but I've really not had a problem. Oh, so oh, that's so a cool one. Taking, I haven't seen that one. I like it. Yeah, so, it, so let me ask this. It's taking the fermentation product gases, CO2, you say, and, and, letting it leave the jar and not letting it back in. Yeah, and not letting other pathogens fall in basically. But this gets back to Bernadette's point of that you want your, whatever you're fermenting to be, it must be all submerged beneath mm -hmm. the liquid. And so when you do the brine, you know, when you do sauerkraut, remember how I said you like rub it together or somehow break down those cell walls, get the moisture to be released, pack it in your jar, smush it down really well. And there should be enough liquid to cover it. If not, you can add a little bit of brine from a previous batch that helps inoculate it. And then um, you can use a cabbage leaf to kind of cover the whole thing. And then there are lots of different weights you can use that will yeah. fit down into a mason jar. <laughs> it's our show and tell. It's our show you and tell. It's right in the tip of the lid, yeah. Yeah, just the whole, all of the food needs to be submerged because things that stick up could become moldy. And so if something yeah. kind of strays to the top, you can go in with a spoon, scoop it out. Another thing is that there could be a, harmless white foam that forms over the days just scoop that off and throw it away here's another little weight this one's made out of um stoneware i guess nice. yeah you definitely um, want something a neutral material to weigh down a glass plate a, you know yeah. special, if you don't have a specialty item i've got these big um i've got a one gallon a three gallon and a five gallon crock for making pickles and i've been making pickles the past couple of years and the tricky thing, though, is I haven't got, I probably have to spend the money to get the the actual weights that fit inside these crocs that I bought. Because I, I like this past time, I used my um, Corelware plates. I've got some ones that are about this size, and I had a stack of them to hold the cucumbers Perfect. down in the brine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did lose a batch, though. So, you know, the oh, thing no. about about fermentation is sometimes you will you will lose a batch and you know it's just all part of the process and um 
so I would like you and, and Bob to kind of maybe talk about what you know about what are the signs that maybe you ought to toss this batch? Because mm -hmm. people are, one of the reasons people don't want to ferment is they're afraid of making themselves sick. But the, the fermentation process gives you pretty good clues that, uh, yeah, this something's gone wrong. <laughs> so white foam is fine. Mm -hmm. What indications would you consider um, not fine? I really don't have any. First of all, I don't like to throw away any food. I know. So I'm, I'm horrible that way. To a fault, perhaps. In fact, you know, uh, my father-in-law, a chemist who uh, would eat moldy bread, that's how they got penicillin. Penicillin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I really don't have, we haven't any bad batches. I think the, the bad batches we have just don't smell like they fermented. And uh. we do test our, at least I'll go back to the salsa example, the really good pico de gallo we make. If it smells tangy a little bit on the edge, has a little bit of extra vinegar smell to it, we know it's piquant and it's good. So mm -hmm. that previous to knowing this, I would have thrown that away thinking, oh, it's rancid. Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying that the smell test, you better be familiar with the smell test before you start throwing things away. Because I think when, even when I go, out, I go outside now and smell the composter, I'm reminded when the compost starts to smell a little funky, that means it's working well. But it, to me, a composter, it's, it's a funky, but in a good way. It's interesting how um, the, we, we like evolve to recognize certain smells to, to be warnings. And there's a good, you walk into a clean barn, you're going to have good hay smells and even, you know, other smells, but it's, it's all wholesome. You walk into something that's unkempt and it's, what's the word you use? Deteriorating. That's putrifying. Putrifying is different than um, fermenting. So and there, this is and probably therefore, not making people hungry, but. Yeah. All right. Right. But, but think about when people did their cooking or stored their foods for long periods in these ceramic uh, urns that you're talking about, Bernadette, yeah. you've already purchased. They yeah. keep their, they don't have refrigeration. They didn't know how, how to keep things, so they use yeah. this as one of the, the methods. Yeah. I'm, I'm reminded well, we, of one of the quotes that Sally Fallon put in her book, and I'll do that real quick because it's on topic. Okay. Hippocrates expressed this principle of what smells good is good for you uh, yes. with the word suavia nutriant. That which smells good nourishes and promotes healing and health. Mm. And so it was a thing, you know, they would use the smell test. So again, if it smells bad, you got to consider it, it might be bad. But again, I was surprised the old bad smell was now a good smell. <laughs> That's right. When I smelled right, no. the, uh, the first batches of our salsa and then it tasted awesome. As it yeah. yeah, I know in the past I've thrown away um, apple juice, if, it, you know, freshly pressed apple juice from my uncle's farm if it became fizzy well there's nothing wrong with carbon dioxide in there you know but now i have a different i, I realize that that's what forms with you might be getting you know, some that's alcohol a too. yes that could be i wrote down here um yeah while you look for oh yeah. go ahead i was just gonna say with my pickle batch um there was like mold on the white foam and I'm like, okay. okay, I'm that was I, you know, and I don't know what happened there. It was a, you know, there's there's just a lot of activity around it. Maybe there was something on one of the 
because they were homegrown pickles. Maybe I didn't scrub it good enough or something. Uh, so, you know, if you wow. see um, mold, it looks different than, you know, white foam. And yeah, I would, this is just me, everybody, not everybody would do this, but I would probably still just taste the inside and, you know, if it's slimy or really smelly, I mm -hmm. would discard it, but I don't know. I'd be tempted just to yeah. skim off the mold. There's but another. In, oh, you're well, you're braver than I am because I haven't done it as much as you. And the more you do it and the yes. more you understand the process, I probably could have. And it wasn't on the actual pickles. It was like on the top layer. I probably could have just um, skimmed that off. But I was a little bit nervous of, of it, you know. And um, you do. It be, it's an art form, isn't it? And, it and really the more experience is. that you have with it um yeah so what were you saying about the carbonation in the fizz oh well that was i guess never mind <laughs> but um another thing that can form on top that i've seen before and it's a, the most mysterious harmless i forgot what it's called but it's it's white but it it kind of acts like oil on the surface of the thing so when you go to to skim it off just the way it acts is like oil, it floats, but it's also powdery. It's powdery and it acts like oil at the same time. Very strange. I've seen the name of it before. Apologies, I don't have it. But here's my um, crock, Bernadette. This is probably a miniature version of what you have. And this one I got from Stone Creek Trading Company, kind of when I graduated from my mason jars. Um, the fun thing about this is, I don't know if you can see, there's a little moat right here. Yeah. And so you put all your goodies in there, submerge them, weigh them down with the weights. And then you put the lid on and you still have this nice little gap. Mm -hmm. And uh, you fill that with water. And again, that allows the gases to escape while keeping things from coming in. And it's such a happy little sound when you hear this thing over there bubbling on your kitchen counter. <laughs> and they, you know, especially little kids would love that too. I try to get my high school boys excited about it and they just think I'm silly. Yeah. Um, and then after, you know, the different time periods that we talked about for anaerobic or the more, the less airtight fermentation and it's mm -hmm. the taste is to your liking, you can move it to well, I guess Bob doesn't always, but you can move it to the fridge or cool oh, no. place to store for months. Yeah, two, two to three days, we move it to the fridge. Oh, okay. And uh, this makes, here, I bought some of these little uh, labels at the Hobby Lobby. You can just make cute little labels, give them for hostess gifts, housewarming gifts, mm -hmm. birthdays, you know, for your favorite foodie. And, um, well, I started my fermenting journey trying to, for the health benefits, and then one time I was getting ready to go out of town and I noticed, oh, shoot, I've got a whole bunch of produce in here. You know, I can't really freeze it. What am I going to do with it? And I thought, oh, I'll preserve it. I'll, I'll ferment it. I'll preserve it, which is kind of ironic because I think that's probably, you know, the original development of fermentation was yeah. for, the, for the purpose of fermenting. Um and uh, apparently it. it's healthful to enjoy it as a little condiment with every meal. Nice. Well, you know, we need to move on. This has been so exciting. I've already learned a little bit from both of you, and I'm excited to get back into doing some countertop uh, fermentation this winter. But let's move on to sprouting. 
Um, so sprouting is another thing that's both, um, you know, nutritious, easy to do. Um, and Bob, how about we start with you this time on sprouting? What's your experience with it? And what's that all about? Right. Well, I'm a neophyte in terms of sprouting. Uh, I've I guess my family's always enjoyed the idea of having sprouts around the house. So my mother, of course, had sprouts growing. We, there was a huge gap in my life that I didn't have any sprouts, but only recently, uh, especially during the weird lockdowns of 2020, mm -hmm. uh, we were starting to get, trying to get back into being more self-sufficient on, on food source and especially uh, garden variety things. So we, restarted our, our sprouting process. And, um, I was I received many stern warnings from my fellow prepping patriots that it's time to get sprouting. Yes. Micronutrients and yeah. just general fresh vegetables that come out concentrated really in the way that sprouts. Well, and I will go back a little bit though. Uh, my wife has sprouted seeds, uh, sprouting legumes, uh, not so much. This is more like this bean sprouts would be in this category. Mm -hmm. Sprouted seeds is also really, really good and important for accessing the enzymes of, of tree nuts. And so we've been doing that for a long time. Mm. Other than that, though, I really would want to defer to Lisa for her sprouting knowledge. Okay. And then um, before we go to there, I just wanted to read a little bit this website that I found, Mums, M-U-M-M. S, um, let's see, is that the actual, oh, the website is, I guess, just sprouting.com um, by Mums Sprouting Seeds. But look at this. They've got all this science on how healthy um, various types of uh, seeds are when they're sprouted. So I wanted to just quickly review with these guys, because when you go to this website, again, on our Substack, we'll include this as a, a resource for you. You can click on it like allergies here. Read more. Um, uh, people with nasal allergies or asthma may want to add broccoli sprouts to their diets if, if early research findings pan out. And they did a study on 65 volunteers. And there's a compound called sulfur. Sulfur, can anybody pronounce that? Sulforaphane, um, which I've been reading about for years and it's amazing, but it's in all your Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, cabbage, but it's really concentrated in the sprouts of those of Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, and cabbage, and you can eat the sprouts. Um, and so, and then they will list um, this goes over to a Reuters, a Reuters article, and then you can link over to the actual study that they did. So this website's fantastic. It talks about studies that have been done on the various compounds in sprouts for asthma, arteriosclerosis, arthritis, bladder cancer, all sorts of cancers, cardiovascular disease, cholesterol. Look at the list just goes on and on. And it, it's really fun to go explore um, and click on it and read the, the studies. And I don't know about you guys, but the more I know about um, the health benefits of something, the more motivated I am to continue it. And then when I look at it, it makes me so happy. And, and sprouting is so fun. The, the variety of flavors that you can get, radish, broccoli, alfalfa. I mean, you can sprout just about anything um, and, and eat that. And just and in a little bit, you don't, it's not like you have to pig out on it. 
a handful on your plate, sprinkled in casseroles, so many ways that you can use the sprouts. So Lisa then explain to our listeners and viewers here the sprouting process. Well, there's microgreens, which is where you just grow in soil, your, your little seeds really thickly laid out, not very tall, and then you harvest them and eat them. But I've found it's a lot easier because you don't have the soil to deal with and, you know, turning over all that is um, you can do it in a jar, a mason jar again. You can mm-hmm. buy a it, just basically a, a little screen thing. Do you have one, Bernadette? I that do. Fits. I've got my little screen. It, it's in your jar lid. Yes. Yes. So you mm-hmm. just soak the seeds overnight first, mm-hmm. it, uh, submerged in water, allow mm-hmm. them to get a little plump. And then after that, for four or five days, twice a day, you'll just be rinsing them really well right through the right through the, the mesh screen and mm-hmm. then inverting it, it upside it. down into a bowl just doing that like twice a day putting it in a dark place and then they should be ready when you know when you don't when all the little holes have cracked open and just mm-hmm. little tiny plants have emerged and you want to eat them pretty soon because they don't keep very long but um yeah i don't know they keep for a few days so it is good to do small batches so that you can yes. eat as you go. Um, and then if, now I haven't sprouted in a while, but if memory serves, once they sprout, you can take them out of that dark place and put them, let them get a little bit of sun. Um, oh, right. And then they might green up just a little bit. And, you know, and that's when I like them best when they just, there's a little bit of color to them. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. That oh, last yeah. day, they just need to be greened up a little bit. There's a, is it sproutpeople.com uh, Ooh, site? I'll we'll go find that. In the notes, they have lots of uh, different, one of my, this is a, a site I found through one of my Patriot friends, Bob. They have lots of different seeds to purchase, like different blends that are amazing. I love the, the pungent ones like mustard, Um but they also have, so in addition to that little screen we talked about on our mason jar, they have kind of a round, it looks like a pan, except the whole bottom of it is screen. It's almost like a cake pan. That yes, size. Yes, like a, a small little pan. cheesecake pan. Yeah. And um, so those, and they have little instruction videos on there. It's extremely easy. So instead of rinsing it out and inverting the jar upside down, you just rinse the seeds in the little cake pan like thing and twice a day and just set it between two plates one to catch the drainage and one to just keep it in the dark and like Bernadette said usually you just want two tablespoons per batch and then I'd start a new batch. you know if you want to have a constant supply well it depends on how fast your family eats them but maybe start a new batch every three or four days so you you always have ready ones oh yeah there's the little cake pan thing on the left oh there it is yeah, yeah. Very cool. And it's so, this just makes me happy to see these green things sprouting. They're just so lovely. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that is so cool. Yeah, and then there's like pans for if you want to grow them as microgreens and keep growing them a little bit longer. Um, And you so you will need a little bit of exposure. I don't recall. Do you remember how long? You can do this in the wintertime too. Will you need a, um, will you need a green light? I mean, not a green light, you know, a grow light. A grow light. No, I think just leaving them, you know, you could leave them on a sunny windowsill or just even in daylight. It's better if you have a grow light just for that last day of greening. Yeah. Or yeah. just go so put them in the sun if it's not freezing outside. 
just wanted to share with you that we do have some grow lights in the bottom for starting seeds for our garden. And this fall, my husband planted some lettuce and grew it all the way from seed in the basement. And it's so cool. So Beautiful. I'll bring a couple upstairs and have it on the on the countertop for a while, just as decoration before we dive in and, and yeah. eat it up. And it's and it's so wonderful to have fresh greens in the winter. You know, it's even at the grocery store, it's hard to find a good head of lettuce. So I want to experiment with a couple of more things. I'll get him to grow down in the basement and, um, you know, just so that we can have fresh salads through the year. But really, if we just have the lettuce and some sprouts, um, you know, we're pretty good to go. And maybe a pickled beet. I don't know why that sounds so good, but some pickled beet would be really good. <laughs> Have you done beets? Me, yes. It's, yeah. Again, it's just a good way to preserve, you know, you get three beets and nobody's really going to eat those unless you put them away and just have a couple of little cubes at a time. Yeah. Now, do you do anything with your pickled foods or do you just like them just as they come out with just the flavors of the, the vegetable and, you know, whatever magic happened in the, in the brine? Um, is that pretty much it? How do you use your, your pickled foods? I guess. Well, for I'm one gonna... thing back to, we can't stand to waste food is even after you've taken all the vegetables out of it, I always use the brine to make salad dressing or just splash on you don't even have to use it to make something. Just I usually end up with like a, an inch of liquid of fermented brine in the bottom of every one of my salads that I just drink at the end and hope nobody sees me using my bad table manners with my bowl. But um, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you can't, you don't really want to cook with them because that will kill all the beneficial microbiome mm. going on there. How about you, Bob? Do you have fancy ways you like to incorporate these? Into well, I just like the fact that even when we get, we, we do some fermentation, lacto-fermentation of beets too, and we'll just use that uh, as a salad accompaniment, just toss it on a mixed salad and have it always available. Uh, onions, beans, we'll add uh, peppers to beans sometimes and, and store them that way and have them somewhat fermented. We'll do that on the countertop and then also just to put it back in the fridge and have it available for you know, it, they'll last at least a month without any stuff mm -hmm. growing on top of the liquid, the storage liquid. Mm -hmm. I hadn't even thought about that. All the uses of the, of the leftover brine that you could um, use that way. I love that idea. I wonder if somebody's got recipes out there for doing that, but it seems pretty simple. You just use it like in lieu of a salad dressing. I wonder if you could mix a little, you know, use it like in place of like the vinegar in a um, oil and vinegar salad dressing recipe or something. Yes. Or replace the water That's and the vinegar. Yeah. Um, both and add a little um, organic extra virgin olive oil. And there you go. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to, to start all this. It's going to be a it's very a nutritious new year. <laughs> I love that. I wanted to share. Um, I think we covered most of the topics here because we've got the sprouts. We didn't spend a lot of time on sprouts, but um, they are so simple to do. You put in, and but again, you want to use um, just a second here, Bob. Like you do want to also use really good water for your sprouting as well. So do you don't you know do try to use um, not the tap water. It's not as crucial. It doesn't undermine the sprouting process as much as it would undermine the fermentation process. 
um, and in my experience to use something, but at least use a filtered water or something. Yes, Bob. Hmm. I was just going to close with uh, on the fermenting side as well. I'm sorry, on the sprouting side of the, the thing we do do is we sprout almonds and we sprout sunflower seeds. We go out and get raw organic almonds and raw organic sunflowers, mm-hmm. sunflower seeds. And then we sprout those. That takes like a two or three day process in the sprouting jar specifically. Similar rinsing, but it takes three days. As soon as you start to see the little nubbins come out, that you you know that those the, the enzymes that are birthing a plant are very accessible to us humans and hmm. extra vitamins and enzymes that, and then you freeze that process by baking them low temperature for about uh, eight or 12 hours, real low temp just to dry them out. And then maybe you add some salt and you've got yourself an instant snack. That's one way to look at it. And also that's another good salad topper. So what's the process of sprouting something like an, uh, you take a raw almond and then you can sprout it. Is it, is it the moisture you get it wet and drain it and turn it upside down just like you would a seed? It's the same process. Yeah. Very similar process. Ah. In fact, you use a similar mesh wire cap that goes on the ball jar, Mm -hmm. but we have a large gallon sized jar with a specific lid for that. I'm sure the Sprout People website has those for sale as well. Okay. And when you say low temperature, what's the temperature so that it doesn't kill? Ooh, okay. Like a, like a dehydrator. Almost like a dehydrator. You could do it in a dehydrator as well. We accelerate it in the the bottom oven. We, our oven does have a small warming drawer Mm -hmm. and we just Um, use that. Okay. And so that dry process, it, it crisps them up. So then you get a good texture and again, it's it's storing those key enzymes. When a plant is being born, it's activating, it's releasing all of those nutrients and enzymes that, that we can take advantage of. Thank mm-hmm. you very much, Tree. And I understand that that inhibits phytic acid and leptins, both of which we don't want. So that's an important thing to do to seeds. Bob, I tried that once and mine turned out really, really hard. And do you have an idea what I'm doing wrong? I, I don't accept that, at least in terms of almonds. Um, we've been successful almost every time. I think you can over dry them or over bake them at that low okay. temp that and turn them into it. rocks again or something. Yeah. yeah. But every time, I mean, we just get, it, it, I swear they're tastier compared to like store-bought almonds salted on the shelf, whatever they do. They roast them, you know, the roasted mm-hmm. almonds, roasted pistachios. They all do the roasting to get them dried out and stored and, you know, and stable. Yeah. Um, I, I have no problem and I'm sorry, you just turned to rock. Yeah. And, and Lisa, you mentioned it was phytic acid. What was the other? Leptins. Leptin. And then also this process neutralizes enzyme inhibitors. Okay. So what, what we know is like nature has these protective elements that you just named to prevent sprouting until the time is right, until the, the seed senses, aha, optimal conditions for me to grow. Um, and that's usually when the soil is warm and moist and spring is coming and it's time, right? And then the life. So it makes sense that if we recreate really springtime for the seeds, it, it gets through the protective barrier releases the nutrition and makes it more nutritious for us. The other thing I wanted to mention that we didn't touch on at all um, is that, and again, in nourishing traditions, they explain how to do this. If you've got like an organic um, 
flour that's already ground. It wasn't sprouted before it was ground into a flour. You can actually soak your flour um, and let it ferment a little bit before you then bake with it. And I have I did this years ago. Based on a little bit, yeah. And like sourdough is very similar, where you you can make your own sourdough starter culture, which is basically making your own yeast um, in order to make your own bread. And that that process also helps break down those things you don't want in the flour to make the nutrition available, make it more digestible. And I used to do that years ago when my son was little. I was making homemade rye breads. He's allergic to wheat, so I was making homemade breads years ago. But I've gotten away a bit from that. I'd like to start again. This has been so much fun, guys. We we down to like a minute, so we really don't have time to show. But um, again, let me... Um, I guess if I just, did I pull up our Substack? I meant to pull up, I did. I'm gonna go ahead and share. Um, so we don't have a Substack yet for, for Washington um, Children's Health Defense, but anything we talk about on the Health Hour as well as the Liberty Hour, which is uh, coming up next, uh, we do include links on our Substack page, the Informed Choice Washington Substack page. So it's informedchoicewa.substack.com. And, you know, every week, um, Gerald uh, drafts for us a newsletter with good, new good news, bad news, all sorts of news, and also show links. Um, let's see, where did it go? Uh, there we go. Um, so we encourage you to go there. So all the things we talked about. And then Lisa's got some book recommendations that are her favorite resources uh, for sprouting and fermenting that we'll be able to share with you um, with the audience as well. Uh, okay, we're down to let me stop sharing here, guys. So, you know, in the next hour, we're very excited. We're going to be talking about the legislative process and how you can be heard in Olympia. So we're going to be very Washington State specific, explaining to you the process so that you can become together with us louder than those lobbyists that are there every single day. You know, that's what we want. So um, stay tuned if you're on the radio. Um, come on back to Twitter or Rumble or wherever you're watching. Uh, we'll be bringing you the Liberty Hour next. You've been listening to The Health Hour on Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We'll be back in a few minutes. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bernadette. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at healthyimmunitynow.org. That's healthyimmunitynow.org. 
Children's Health Defense is a nonprofit organization with a mission to end childhood health epidemics by working aggressively to eliminate harmful exposures, hold those responsible accountable, and establish safeguards to prevent future harm. The Washington chapter of Children's Health Defense is stepping up at the state and local levels, but we can't do this without you. Join us at wa.childrenshealthdefense.org. Let's restore and defend children's health and their futures in Washington State.